G'day everyone. Welcome to Porsche Talk Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Mark from the most social media channels as Mark and Cars. That's Mark with a C. And as always, joined by Ajmal, the flat cap driver. G'day, Ajmal. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, I'll let you tell the listeners why. We have a special guest today. Welcome, Patrick Long. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Great to have you. Patrick, this is like having like Porsche royalty on our uh, podcast. And after several of our guests have, you know, had various backgrounds in Porsche enthusiasm, you're like the first official Porsche related type person. Everyone else is sort of like a nutcase like us, really. Yeah, well, I'm just another Porsche nutcase. Um, fortunate enough to be able to have called myself a, a factory driver and raced for Stuttgart since 2002. But um, yeah, many great memories racing in Australia at Bathurst, uh, even doing some V8s at uh, Surfers Paradise uh, over a decade ago. But um, recently retired at the end of 2021 from full-time racing. I still get in the car quite often um, and also stay busy uh, with my own company, uh, Luftgekult, which does an air-cooled experiential show here. Uh, in Southern California. So uh, right in the thick of it right now and uh, yeah, geared up for October 9th. I can imagine. Uh, we'll come back to Lufkukult. We'd love to talk about your career that 2002, that's like 20 years. Yeah. Un- unbelievable ride. Um, you know, to get paid to race cars, I would have um, given a, an extremity to do one or two years, uh, especially for a manufacturer like Porsche, but um, to do almost two decades with them, um, starting in Germany in their UPS junior team as sort of a, a career cup, super cup, uh, young kid, um, and and then come over here to the States and race primarily in IMSA, but also in Pirelli World Challenge, uh, Grand Am prototypes, LMP2, Daytona prototype, GT racing, pretty much anything with a, a Porsche engine um, I had the opportunity to jump into and uh, loved every second of it. Um, but yeah, de- definitely wanted to get my hands into other things besides just professional racing and, uh, had a, had an amazing time. It was such an experience, um, not only to race and drive amazing cars and do 18 Rolex 24s and 15 Le Mans 24s in a row, uh, with all different types of legends, uh, professionals, non-professionals, et cetera, but really just becoming an ambassador for the brand, especially in North America, As I was the only member of the team from this continent, it kept me busy away from the racetrack. And I found that there were so many other things that I was engaged with um, for the company besides racing that I could see a light at the end of the tunnel when racing uh, wasn't my main focus that I was going to want to do a lot of things with this company. Yes, great. It's amazing. Tell us that there's a lot that's gone on in that 20 years. A lot of emotion, a lot of results, a lot of failures too, I have no doubt, in that learning curve on, you know, achieving those amazing outcomes. A lot of 911-based vehicles, a lot of LMP vehicles, and I see you sort of dabbled in non-Porsche cars as well with NASCAR and V8 supercars here in Australia, but I'd like to talk about those in a bit. But on the Porsche side of things, what – is how much of the cars evolved as a driving experience from when you started 20 years ago? Because the Carrera Cup cars or the Super Cup cars, they still look very similar to a degree over the last 20 years. How's that been as a driving experience for you? Uh, I mean, technology has allowed so much progression. 
um, not only uh, driver aids and driving style and downforce and damping and and just sheer grip and horsepower, but um, driving style lap times. I mean, if I think back to my first endurance races in a 996 RS, um, a current turnkey cup car in the 992 chassis it would be quicker around Le Mans than um, even the, the flagship RSR GT car. So, um, you know, things like ABS, uh, traction control, sequential gearboxes, paddle shift, none of that existed at the start. I mean, it was a synchro box. When I did 996 Carrera Cup and Super Cup, it was an analog old school 996 OEM uh, tack and a little Motec lap timer at the center of the dash, and that was it. Um, the, the cars were so simplistic, but they were so amazing to drive. They just um, it was it was all about uh, the driver at that time, and, and an H pattern synchro box and flat shifts on the way up um, was was a lot of fun. When I think about driving um, the new age Carrera Cup cars and how much they've progressed, um, it's every bit as difficult to extract a lap time out of them and to win a championship. But it's just a whole other set of tools that you're dealing with. Amazing. So I've got a quick question. Sorry on on that because. I'm an advocate of old school driving. I, I, I drive for the experience. I don't drive for speed. And I've got, for context, I've got an old 996, 1998, Ooh. and I've got a 1966 912. And for me, if, if you go back to when you first got into that 996 and the fun that you had driving that and, and you were almost manhandling it around the track and you're dragging it around the track, as a driver, as the experience has evolved to where it is now, if you could choose one era to go back to just for the experience, forget lap time, where would it be? Oh, it's difficult to pick just one. Um, I do think about those days in 996 Career Cup, uh, Super Cup. I mean, the standing starts at Monza, Monaco, Nürburgring, uh, Norris Ring. Those were just such hard-fought races. Um, the drivers in that championship in that year, I mean, legendary names like, uh, you know, Wolf Hensler and Roman Dumas and, you know, Uwe Altsin and Roland Ash and all these legends that I grew up watching race DTM or um, single seaters. It was an amazing time in an era that I absolutely loved. It was a little overwhelming because to that point, I really hadn't done any um, tin top or GT racing. Um, I was a single seater guy and a, and a karting kid. And I'm sure you've talked to other drivers and that transition when you go to a lot more weight and you have fenders and just just the proportions of the car are so much bigger and it's less relatable to the karting that we all did as youngsters. So there was definitely some adaptation and, and some challenges, but it was so um, rewarding and surreal to um, pick up a couple of victories in that first season. And it allowed me to sort of start my tenor into endurance racing and to go back at the end of that 2003 season and race the Petit Le Mans, uh, the finale of the IMSA tracks um, in the U.S. and to be racing against the Audi R8 and a mixed class formula of endurance racing. It was sort of the start of of a big chunk of, of my career there, um, both in prototypes and GT racing and endurance sports car racing. But um, other things that I remember that I loved were Daytona prototypes. Um, it was a, a, a period in Grand Am, NASCAR owned Grand Am racing in the US 
and racing for overall victories on sort of modified ovals and traditional road courses. And there was 20, 30 cars and they were all so evenly matched. And the cars were sort of a, a hybrid of a, a traditional prototype and almost a GT car. And so there was lots of side to side contact, really close racing, lots of um, close finishes and, and, and a mixed format of three or four different chassis manufacturers and different power plants. So sometimes you'd be in the same chassis as the guy next to you, but he'd be in a five liter V8, you'd be in a flat six, a four liter flat six and different RPM limits, different intake measurements uh, for restrictions. So there were lots of tracks and different strengths and weaknesses. So um, loved every bit of it. Last week I was with Penske um, out in Daytona watching the new LMDH car, the GTP car prepare for uh, the Rolex 24 in 2023. And being around Penske and the organization and the partnership between Porsche and Penske reminded me of my three years racing for Roger Penske. And um, as he did in Australia with V8 Supercars and Scott McLaughlin, he's just such a dominant figure in any type of racing that he's in. And to see him back with Porsche racing for overall victories and prototypes takes me back to my 2006, 7, and 8 seasons racing for that company. And what a dream place for a, a young driver to race. Um, everything that you could ask for in resources, in organization, in branding, in aesthetics, but also the pressure that comes along with putting Team Penske overalls on um, and, and needing to perform. So uh, amazing times. And it was fun to spend some time with Roger last week in Daytona. Imagine. When you when you say Penske, um, it kind of reminds me of the single-seater um, indie racing from the 90s because we used to get that yeah. over here a little bit in England because obviously Nigel Mansell went over as Formula One champion. And it, it kind of reminded us of that period and also the because when you say you you did single seater racing, what what made you choose to go into sort of a non single seater racing, open wheel racing? Was it just a, a deliberate course of action, or was it just something that you fell into at a certain point in your career? Um, I mean, it was opportunity. It was the chance to uh, become a, a factory uh, assisted driver. And knowing from an early age that I didn't have the family money to fund my way um, very far in motorsport, I quickly listened to a lot of mentors and advisors that said, if and when you get the chance to test for any manufacturer, that is sort of the, the thickest ice you're ever going to stand on as a racing driver and have some job security. But um, when it was Porsche and the feedback of those mentors and assistants telling me that these guys race to win, they've always been marketing and motorsport, um, they're loyal to their drivers, um, and, and you're going to, again, have those resources to almost immobilize uh, all the factors, the B factors that young drivers are up against in trying to find sponsors and get that one chance, that one grand stage to show off their ability and what they've worked on their whole life. For myself, backing up, I was a Southern California kid, a son of a surfer and a carpenter. I didn't come from a motorsports family and I certainly didn't have the wealth uh, or the experience to sort of lead me um, straight to the top. So racing go-karts was just a hobby. It was something that my family did um, as enthusiasts, they were Saturday night short track dirt racers and, and demolition derby and you name it. It was whatever was at the local Saturday night track. So when I learned about go-karting as a kid and being an eight-year-old and racing and karting, um, I sort of cut my teeth there and, and had the chance to go to Europe and race um, in international karting and in the world championships. And that's when I met my first Australian roommate in Ryan Briscoe, 
Uh, we lived and worked together at CRG in 1998, racing all over the world in five different continents and, and just had an amazing opportunity as a teenager. Um, later on, I lived in the UK racing Formula Ford, another Australian roommate in James Courtney. And so all along, we always had a, a subscription to auto action coming into our house. And I was aware of what was going on in Australia. Um, Alex Davidson was another guy that I came across. Him and his brother, Will, were uh, great friends living in Europe. And it was a little bit of the United Nations. We were all living over there, um, just trying to get the experience uh, with national level racing to become professionals one day. And so um, after five or six years of being in Europe, um, when Porsche called, um, I was actually in a Red Bull program um, vying for the first inaugural U.S. Red Bull Formula One driver scholarship to take an American to Formula One. And although it went pretty well, I didn't get the final pick. But Porsche had come along to see that test and to see all of the PR that was being created out of this Austrian energy drink that had stepped up to get an American recognized into Formula One. And I think Porsche realized that Red Bull had done a lot of the hard work for everybody else in sort of picking out uh, young drivers from America that had the experience to race. So um, just timing and opportunity um, to give you a really long-winded answer. So do you know, do you know Scott Speed then? Yeah, he was um, in the same group that first year. Um, and I've, I've run into Scott, especially when he was with Volkswagen, me running for Porsche and him running for Volkswagen. Essentially, uh, we were getting our paycheck from the same company. But um, yeah, Scott's a great competitor. Uh, another California kid. Uh, we raced karting together. I wouldn't say we were the best of friends as youngsters. Um, if one of us could run the other one off for a victory, we were going to do that. But um, great to see him these days in rally cross and running um, a combination of dirt and, oh, wow. and pavement and and doing jumps and and all kinds of things like that with uh, Travis Pastrana's series. So um, yeah, it's it's great that most of the kids I raced with at the front of the pack in the 90s have found their way uh, to something of a of a career in motorsport and a lot of a lot of them haven't, but most have and I think it goes to show that when you look at some of the national level karting in any country, uh, you can find some future talent there. Because I just remember the uh, Scott Speed making it into Formula Formula One, and you know there's always a big fanfare when a, a, a Yank makes it into Formula One, because you know back then it was Bernie Eccleston and he said yes, a marketing man's dream, and and I remember when he was trying really hard to get Danica Patrick mm -hmm. to come to Formula One, and I don't think she was ever really interested. Um, but it was it was the the, the marketing thing to say. But then uh, you know I think Michael Andretti had been at McLaren years and years before, and it was Correct. always a big big thing to get an, an American into Formula One because back in the nineties that you know Formula One hadn't broken America as the uh, and, and not like it has now, and the global appeal that it has everywhere else it never really because there's so much motor racing that goes on in America. And it's so much more accessible. And Formula One is not accessible. It's not something you can just walk in down the paddock where you can see the drivers. You then they're not they don't seem like real people. Even even over here, where it's you know the 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 races happen all throughout Europe and they're really historic. It it's, it doesn't feel accessible like American motorsport does. Um, so I think I think that's probably one of the reasons why you know everyone was desperate for Formula One to make it in in the US. Um, but from uh, Scott Speed, I mean, when he made it in, in I remember he and I remember thinking he's going to make it to a big team, and then he disappeared. And I think it was probably to do with sponsorship or something like that. I don't know for sure. 
But, you know, there's so many drivers from America you think are going to make it. And I think there's somebody who's about to sign for McLaren. Mark, you're going to have to correct me. Who Who is it? Uh, we're probably we're probably looking at um, Colton Herta. Um, That's it. You know, he's, yes. he's probably the prospect if he can get his super license. But, yeah, back to your point with Michael Andretti in the early 90s, that didn't go to plan with McLaren. A lot of hype there. And we saw a lot of other Americans test or show promise. Um, as you mentioned, Scott had a short stay um, with Red Bull. But, um, yeah, certainly accessibility and media and um, the job that the Drive to Survive documentary has done for the American public to engage in Formula One and to really put a human aspect to Formula One and to give personalities and a behind the scenes of how the business and the politics work in Formula One. It's it's great. I, I don't think it's easy to put together a series like Drive to Survive. I think a lot of people have tried to emulate it and, and thought, oh, if we just have access and some cameras, then our series or our team or our sponsor will just explode into um, this phenomenon. And I think that there's really a lot of credit due to the people behind Drive to Survive as a series. As far as the future of Formula One in America, I think there's a lot of prospects that are coming up these days that, um, you know, we certainly should watch. I mean, Colton Herta is one of the most refreshing and and refined young men that I've seen in, in IndyCar in a long time. And the great part about him is what you see is what you get. He's just a great human. He's straightforward. When he messes up, he says he messes up. He's approachable. Um, his dad was a hero driver of mine in the IndyCar days. And um, doesn't remain too involved with Colton on a business front, but still calls his strategy in the IndyCar races. So um, great to see some more Californians there um, racing at the front of the grids in these international series. But, you know, Australia, New Zealand, they've been uh, reigning pretty well and and at the top in IndyCar for quite some time. And uh, certainly cool to see some of you guys uh, with some youngsters coming into Formula One now and next year with uh, young Oscar as well. Well, I, I did... Sorry, Mark. There was um, in the early nineties. Um, I don't know if you heard. It was kept really under wraps, but uh, Ed and Senna tested in IndyCar. I don't yeah. know if you if you heard that. And he it, over here, it was kept really quiet because it was really he was just trying to piss off, you know, uh, Ron Dennis because he wanted a better deal. He wanted to possibly move to a more competitive car. It was and it was ninety two or ninety three when the Williams over here was dominant, and Paul Tracy did a little interview and it was it was brilliant. He said that uh, that test that Ed Senna did changed the way that um, IndyCar drivers attacked corners and bends from then on because it was always uh, a certain way of driving through a bend, and Ed Senna came along, and just in that test where all the all the young drivers and Paul Tracy was the young driver then were sat there watching him and he did it in a very different way where he had the way he carried speed through a corner instead of just easing off as the car lost grip he powered through the corner and Paul Tracy was saying that it just redefined what it meant to drive a car because it was the you know the drivers didn't cross between the formulas back then um, and it just brought something different. And I and I suspect that if it had gone the other way and a driver had come over from IndyCar to Formula One, they would have brought something different over that Formula One drivers probably hadn't seen before. And I feel like it's a, it's a bit of a missed opportunity from back then. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the spec of Formula, I remember that test. Um, Ayrton Senna was with Emerson Fittipaldi and there was a connection there with Marlboro as yep. the Team Penske sponsor and uh, McLaren. And 
I, uh, I think it was, it was amazing um, to think back to the eras of those two cars. And I think they were a lot more relatable in driving style and in technology um, than they are today. The lap time Delta was probably still quite a bit more in favor of Formula One. But as we knew about Senna, um, he'd get into anything and, and absolutely wring its neck. So I think that that test took place at Firebird um, in Arizona. So only a few hours um, east of where I'm sitting today. But um, yeah, amazing uh, era uh, to me, the purity of early 90s Formula One and early 90s champ car, cart, Indy car, whatever you want to call it. Uh, just some of the purest and most insane period of racing uh, of all time. Patrick, with regards to the, you mentioned the young drivers coming through. The US is notoriously the largest market for Porsche. Why? Why are you the only Porsche driver for that period? What? What? What has been hard? Has it been a lack of development through the Career Cup because of the uh, number of driving categories that a race, you know, a professional, a path to professional driving offers in the US? You know, so I'm just curious as to. It just baffles me that you're the you're the one, you know, not through your you know uh, ability or anything, just the and your population. I would have expected there to be a lot more uh, US drivers at you know within the Porsche team. Yeah, I certainly think that there was plenty of of talent um, from the US. Um, there was plenty of sort of marketing connection and things have really always been a bit of a love affair between California as a market, uh, America and Porsche. I mean, the brand is so beloved over here. Um, candidly, I think it was uh, timing for me. I had been living and racing in Europe uh, and I had the cultural experience from a 16 year old that, to move away from home and to, to live and race um, in Europe. I think that gave me the unfair advantage of getting the seat with Porsche. And back then the team was really small. I mean, I think the first year that I joined the works team uh, for 2004, there maybe was only five drivers on the roster. And later on, um, there was, it swelled up to, to 20 or so. Um, so it really did grow over time, but I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I always saw that there was room for more than one, but um, as long as I was doing my job and winning races um, and being reliable on and off the track, then um, maybe, maybe they were satisfied with, with me uh, holding it down. Um, in, in saying all that, you know, every single race, you're as good as your last race as a racing driver. And it's never about resting on your laurels or sitting back and saying, oh, I've won this race in the past or that race in the past, or I have this many social media followers. The bottom line is you have to hit the ground running. You have to be competitive. And toward the end of my career, it, it took a lot of effort, um, you know, to, to race against young 20 year olds when you're twice their age, 40 is not old. But, you know, you you take risks differently. You you apply yourself to the race weekends differently. You certainly have a lot of wisdom, uh, which can help you get the car to the end of the race and save your tires and be strategic. But sometimes wisdom on the stopwatch is a little bit slower. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a, that's a really interesting point, because um, in Formula One, there was an interesting um, in Suzuka in the early 2000s. Uh, Michael Schumacher was overtaken. What's the the turn, the the famous bend at Suzuka? I can't remember what it's called. But Michael Schumacher was overtaken by Fernando Alonso and mm -hmm. on the outside. And Schumacher backed off and let him cut in. And they they asked him afterwards. And they said, well, you were always the guy on the outside 
twiddling with something on the steering wheel, talking to your pits while overtaking on the outside. How come you didn't just leave him, hang him out to dry on the outside? Uh, and he went, uh, that Schumacher was 20 something. This Schumacher has two children. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and and the bizarre thing is when he came back to Formula One in 2010, he was just as mad as ever. You know, and and you know when when people you know Lewis Hamilton couldn't overtake him for forty laps, and afterwards, you know, the head of McLaren said, um, "When you're up against somebody that aggressive, sometimes you know you've got to back off because he's going to put you in the wall, he's going to put you on the grass, he's going to put you in the gravel uh, because he's he just he takes no prisoners." And it's interesting how you know, as a, as a driver, that you evolve because sometimes you just take crazy risks as a young driver. Uh, from the things that we've seen, but uh, other times you just think, well, actually, I don't need to take that risk because I'll I'll do something with strategy. I'll do something a bit later on where I'll get them with a pit stop. I'll do an undercut. I'll do something. So it's amazing that you're saying that because it's exactly that. Sometimes it does relate to lap time because you don't take a risk because you think, well, actually, I can take a less risky approach, but get them in a different way. And and that, I guess, comes from experience, doesn't it? It does. It comes from experience. It comes from muscle memory. Um, a lot of times in pro sports, especially in motorsport, um, the, the people on the couch or the people watching the, the videos on YouTube, um, they, they can ask a question like, what was he thinking? Or why did he do this? Or that was stupid, or that was brave, or that was amazing. But the reality of it is, is that it's a split second decision. It's a tenth of a second that determines hero or zero, determines championship or, you know, complete disappointment. So if something flies at your head and you put your hand up in reaction to block it versus moving left or moving right, that decision is mostly subconscious. And in motorsport, to make speed, to make an overtaking maneuver, it's not often a lot of conscious thought in the motion it actually happens like with instinct. And so we look at a lot of the science in sports um, about pre sort of visualization, practice, exposure, um, you know, what is muscle memory? What is nature? What is nurture? And so um, like all sports, uh, a lot of it is natural. Other things are learned and practiced. And then when you really come down to it, it's you against yourself. Often uh, your career is defined by how perfect you can be uh, and achieving your best every single time you go out there. And certainly even more important is how do you pull yourself out of a mental spiral where things aren't going well and you have to find a, find your baseline and it's through self-talk and it's through that own motivation um, that you really find uh, whether you're going to continue spiraling down or you're going to turn the situation around and go forward. And um, so many people think, oh, well, I could do that. It looks easy. But the heroes on TV that when I watch Formula One, I realize just how much they're putting into it. And for someone like Fernando Alonso to be um, still putting moves out there and, and putting speed uh, that he is on the board, you have to be fueled by the physical side, the mental side, a little bit of ego, uh, a little bit of insanity um, to do it that long and to do it that well. But um, it's such a refreshing time to see that the technology in motorsport allows a 20-something-year-old to uh, bring in that that nothing-to-lose and everything-to-prove mentality, and then to have the elder statesmen keeping them honest and challenging them through a different application. It's a, it's a tremendous sport when you break it down to the mental science. It is. Coach, I'd like to talk to you about some cars. 
You've sat, in sure. a couple, you've sat in a couple in your time. How much of a spaceship to drive are the LMP cars compared to other category of race car that share the track at Le Mans? Um, prototypes are wild. The amount of downforce and grip that they make is on par with any car on track, single seater uh, or not. Um, so first of all, your mind and your body just have to be uh, convinced how capable they are and how much speed you can take through a corner. And, you know, if you do take too much speed, the way that the car will step out on you is so much more abrupt and with less warning that it can be catastrophic. So um, the ability to work your way into understanding where the grip is and where the edge is is much tougher with aerodynamics and the way that they work. Um, fundamentally to drive the car, it's not too bad. There's lots of buttons, lots of protocol, lots of things that you need to be able to operate. Um, but that comes through practice. Um, you know, it's, it's carbon brakes, uh, that really took the biggest amount of time for me to adjust to, um, carbon. The first time you go down into turn one on cold brakes doesn't work very well. So you sort of have to preheat your brakes and understand uh, where that is. But ultimately in any type of race car that you're in, high downforce, low downforce, carbon brakes, steel brakes, it's still the relationship between you and your four tires. And your four tires are the most important part of the equation. And that's what setup really comes um, down to is how hard you work those tires, how quickly the air pressure comes up, um, how you make your tires last through a complete stint. It's why motorsport people are always talking about tires. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I've got like... I've never been motor racing. I've recently started experiencing the track in my own Porsche. I've got a 981 GD4 and I also have an old 356, but I don't take that on the track. I'm too kind to that car. The, uh, I, I, now I'm experiencing this and understanding air pressures and things like this, how the teams get the air pressures right from when the tyres are cold through to, well, I know they're not cold, cold, but they're not as warm as they are as they're not at operating temperature when the car's been sitting on the grid for eight minutes waiting to start a race or however long it is, how do they start with very low pressures and heat up to optimal? Is is that how it works? I'm just, or is can they can you bleed air off from the cockpit in a car, in a modern race car? Yeah, there's no active um, bleeding of tire pressures um, on track. Um, there are things uh, that exist called bleeders that have sort of a threshold where once they achieve a maximum number, then there'll be a release. But those aren't allowed in 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 racing, any racing that I know of, at least in road racing, uh, am or pro. Um, so yes, to your point, it's it's more uh, the former in that you have to guesstimate the growth of the tire pressure from a cold tire to a hot tire. And if you have the right tire and the right setup and the right driver and the right engineer, then you should be able to get your tires to stabilize in an operating window that's optimal for performance and also the rigidity of the tire and how the tire works, the spring rate, if you will, of the tire. So, yeah, I would say that um, in my memories, you know, we have TPMS onboard uh, tire pressure monitoring systems that tell us uh, where our tire temperatures are. And now they even have uh, an ability to see what the temperatures of the tires are live time, not only to the telemetry back to the crew in the pits, but also on your dash as you're driving. And I would say on an average temperature day, uh, you would have growth somewhere in like the six to eight pounds of tire pressure 
Uh, I don't know off the top of my head what that is in bar, but um, you you really do find a, a plateau where if you don't abuse the tire, it shouldn't continue to just grow with every lap. So once you get that tire in an operating window, um, you should be able to do consistent lap times and keep it pretty stable. But there's lots of factors, uh, track temperature, ambient uh, moisture in the tire, what kind of air or nitrogen, uh, whatever you might be putting in the tire, how the tire was mounted up. I mean, the science of motorsport can go to uh, any degree you want it to, but for the most part, um, tire pressure would be one of the single most important things. You could have the fastest race car um, known to man, but if your tire pressure is two, three pounds off high or low, uh, it's going to be very difficult to overcome that issue. Mark, has your car got nitrogen in the tires? It does not. Oh, oh change right. that one. <laughs> I, drive that the, I drive the car every day. I don't know if I'm going to. Now, the, uh, Patrick, what was your first experience in an Australian V8 supercar going up the mountain at Bathurst like? Well, my first experience, um, if I'm not mistaken, was, oh, gosh, was it? I want to say Victoria Raceway, but I, I don't think it was. I can't even remember what track. We, I was racing for Gary Rogers Motorsports, and I was the wild card um, of the internationals coming over to race at, v, at the V8s at, at Surfers Paradise. And Gary took me uh, to a track to test me out. And jumping into that car, I just remember that it was big. Um, it was it 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 felt powerful. It made a great sound. But every time I turned the wheel. I felt more mass than I was used to. And also the visuals of the car, this was the sort of pre uh, cursor to the car that you see now. Um, the visuals were really hard to adjust to and just extracting speed with a live axle and spec tires and spec brakes and an awesome, awesome engine. It was, it was so challenging, but so rewarding. And then taking that car uh, to surfers paradise to the street track in, in Queensland was uh, just that much more difficult because the confines of the track were so tight and the, the drivers um, in V8s were such specialists. I mean, they could do things with those cars that the best drivers from Formula One, sports car, IndyCar, NASCAR, you name it. We were realistically still one to two seconds um, off of the regular drivers in the championship, even after a couple days in the car. So it goes to show how challenging those cars were in that period. I think that might have been 2011 or so the first time I came over but um great memories like I said living with Aussies I knew what V8 supercars was all about and internationals had gone over there from time to time to do Sandown and Bathurst and I always wanted my chance to drive those cars and luckily I had been racing um some NASCAR in the states that year and the year before so I sort of had an understanding of what I was getting myself into and a little bit of an unfair advantage in in how to sort of wrestle those cars around the, the track. So it was quite funny that um, the year after uh, most of the teams went after sports car drivers, where the first year um, I was kind of a, a lesser known guy and they were going after the big single seater drivers. And then um, that second year, I would say it was probably 60% GT guys uh, that were being used as the endurance drivers in those races. I imagine that long, those uh, long races and that experience with endurance in general, particularly with the longer races over here in Australia, uh, would be a great asset for the team. How did you get involved in the air-cooled Porsche community? Well, I mean, the, the introduction to air-cooled Porsche, that happens day one 
uh, at Porsche. When you're when you're racing and living in Weissach outside of Stuttgart, and you go to the hollowed grounds um, where Weissach and Flocked Motorsport, all of R and D for the cars company, um, happen in this sort of winter wonderland um, space up on the hill and sort of the outskirts of Stuttgart, you quickly realize the heritage and how much this company's done in motorsport um, over the years from the inception of the company. Um, my first introduction into an air-cooled car was a pretty legendary car, the 550 Spider from the Carrera Panamericana that wow. the, the museum owned. And to jump into a 4KM open-top 550 and race that car day one uh, without really knowing anything other than driving a, a 66 Volkswagen Bug was about the closest thing I had ever driven to um, and told to just go flat out in that car and, and win the race. And I was racing Johan Maas um, in a Mercedes and it was kind of a match race around uh, a temporary street circuit kind of parking lot. Um, unbelievable. But from there, I had exposure and, and chances to drive lots of vintage cars that the museum and the, and the company owned, but also to coach and have the opportunity to work with some of the Porsche Club members in the U.S. and to drive some of their cars, street cars, uh, race cars, and understand just how visceral they were and how engaging they were and how much fun they were to drive. Every time I drove a, a G-Body 911 or an F-Body 911, I, I felt connected to the car like a child, uh, your first time racing a go-kart or, or taking your parents' car sideways on a dirt road, it just, it, it just totally invigorated me. And it, and it was so challenging and so interesting. And there was so much communication from the car. So I was always talking uh, amongst my Porsche peers about, yeah, I'd like to invest and find the right air-cooled 911. And I'd love to have an investment in a, in a classic Porsche. And maybe it would be a 356 or maybe it would be a 911. And I think some of my peers got tired of me talking about it and asked if I was ever going to pull some money out of my pocket and buy a car. And um, so I finally did that in 2012 or nah, 2013. I bought a, a, an 86 911 and I started driving it early mornings, uh, late afternoons, weekends, and just looking for other enthusiasts to learn about these cars and to uh, exchange secrets and, and experiences. And I just... I wasn't finding um, a car show community that I really connected to. And in 2014, just a year later, um, I pulled some friends together that weren't from the Porsche world. And we threw our own uh, kind of car social gathering. And uh, that was the start of a business that um, today is my primary focus uh, and swallows up the most amount of time. I'm still working for Porsche as an ambassador and and as an advisor uh, to them and a consultant. But yeah, when you have your own business and it's uh, around Porsche enthusiasm, uh, your phone is never quiet. Let's just say that. I can imagine. And so with the uh, with the business, what is it that takes up all the time? Um, I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, the event business is the primary part of Luftgekult, uh, my company. Um, we do direct-to-consumer apparel as well through our website, Um, And then we manage uh, a great, great contingent of sponsors and marketing partners who align with us, um, you know, most of them multi-year deals uh, to help them market and, and communicate with a new sector of their um, potential clientele. And so um, those are kind of the three ecosystems. 
um, of the business. We also do a lot of private label um, sort of consulting design and direction um, in all of those categories, whether it's digital, online, offline, um, apparel or events for other companies. So um, during the pandemic, when we weren't producing our own sort of annual gathering, uh, there were a lot of companies that came to us. A lot of them were our marketing partners and asked if we could help them with some of their creative um, and execution. So yeah, it's great. It's a small team. There's there's five of us that work on a daily basis at Luft. Um, but as you know, running your own business, um, sometimes they say um, it's about managing personalities. And and I've really learned a lot about leadership. Um, racing cars is is an interesting place because you know, you sort of show up to the race weekend and everything's set up and you're the, the last one to arrive. And then, you know, you get all the glory and, and the fame and you take the awards and then you say bye to all the guys and the tent is still s- sort of built up and, and the truck's still there and everybody else breaks down when you're on the fl- first flight out. And owning my own events business, I now understand um, all those years that I had uh, with great people doing logistics behind the scenes. So, um, yeah, it's it's just a, an experience that's not unlike motorsport because the reality is, is that you announce a date and a time and that event is going to happen whether you're ready or not. And that's kind of what motorsport's about. There's really no adjusting your deadlines. There's no adjusting your time frames like in other businesses where you can roll back. Uh, deliverables and, and apologize to your clients. In this case, they're showing up uh, 8 a.m. on October 9th in, in San Pedro, and uh, we're going to be ready. I'll, uh, I'll be sorry to miss it, mainly because of its, uh, not just because of the time of the year or anything like that, it's just the sheer distance. I'm hoping to get there next year. The, uh, wow, we'd love to have you. <laughs> the uh, With regards to the attainability getting further away for younger car enthusiasts of air-cooled Porsche because of the values of the cars. Is there any appetite within your uh, company or any event development towards, you know, cheaper Porsches, transaxle cars, uh, other water-cooled cars, or, you know, is there anything like that in the pipeline on the horizon for what what your uh, team offers? Yeah, for sure. And and I think working with Porsche Classic and with Porsche in, in marketing um, all over the world, not just in the US, um, I've been sort of beating this drum loud since uh, Lyft sort of turned into um, a reoccurring event that this is a great way to engage with, with the future Porsche demographic. I mean, you know, a lot of people in the Porsche world that they come second, third generation as family legacy uh, Porsche families. Uh, and they get dragged to these social communities uh, by their parents or their grandparents. But for people who aren't part of the Porsche lineage, the introduction to Porsche, um, that's what Luft is all about. Um, when I did the first event, all the direction, all the car selection, all the layout, the timing, the food, the bev, the merch was all about the non-Porsche faithful and introducing a new demographic to the cars. And to answer your question about obtainability and, and affordability. Um, sure, the days are gone of, of picking up a $5,000 912, but you still can find um, those diamonds in the rough, um, those barn find, those you know garage doors left open in a neighborhood, and you, you find a car that's been left there for many decades and um, someone's willing to part with it. So I always tell youngsters, um, don't assume that everything is unobtainium these days because um, the market has appreciated. The same goes for water-cooled cars. I mean, a few years ago, a 996C2 was 
you know, $20,000. And now it's two, three X that um, to get a really solid car. And so, yeah, the market's always moving. Um, but on the transaxle side and on the water cooled side, um, I do have uh, plans and ambition uh, to produce an event that um, caters to all different Porsches um, from all specs and eras. And I would say the beginning of quarter two, 2023, uh, we'll have uh, more not only to say, but uh, to let people experience. And um, I'll say here for the first time, my goal is to have uh, the world's largest single brand event in the world. And that um, I think will come naturally um, through the Porsche passion that people have and the amount of cars that exist um, all over this country, but internationally. I mean, in 2019, the last time we had an event in Southern California, we had 48 of 50 states in attendance and we had 22 countries um, of people who flew in um, to come to the event. So it's not just Southern California that Luft caters to and, and, and who I communicate with. Uh, plenty of Australians, uh, people from the UK, uh, South Africa, South America, um, they come from all over. And, and, and really, there is that human aspect to um, these shows, not just our show, but um, lots of lots of different um, sort of automotive gatherings, that it really is that way of socially connecting um, with the people that you interact with online and, and in social media on a daily basis. I feel like that's a that's a world exclusive we just got there. Yeah, that <laughs> uh, he's going to have the biggest show ever in the world. Um, I, I single brand, single brand, single brand. Yeah. But, but, but winding back a little bit, I just wanted to um, actually before I, I've got a couple of questions, but before that, um, NASCAR in the UK. Do you say that to anybody? People of a certain age are going to think Days of Thunder, Top yeah. Gunning cars, <laughs> and yeah. it's. And and the thing is, it's it's so full contact, isn't it? It it's it's just so full on. And you know, when I and I've never really watched it apart from, you know, that was my sort of seeing it. And you just think, well, obviously that's made for, you know, movies, it's it's storyline, it's drama, it's all of those things. And then when um over here uh Juan Pablo Montoya came over to uh, William, uh, McLaren and Williams in Formula One, and obviously he, you know, he he was a, a well-known, very well-known driver over here, and he went back to NASCAR. And then I watched a couple of races, and you go, well, actually, it it is like that. It is full contact. I mean, it was that. Is was that your? Is that have you experienced that kind of NASCAR, or did you drive in a different category? No, I, it is full contact. And I drove every category from the local sort of Formula Ford of stock cars, if you will, the late model racing um, in the southern states of Alabama and Florida, um, all the way up to Cup and making a start at Watkins Glen and, and rolling onto the grid with the big boys. And um, it is full contact. It's not demolition derby. Um, it's not wreck them at all costs, but um, rubbing doors, as they say, or loosening them up front to rear. Yeah, it's it's part of the sport and it's what the sport was bred on um, racing on the beach in Daytona and the short tracks across uh, the U.S. And I think you see different forms of stock car racing in the U.K. Um, you see it in in certainly in Australia. Um, oval racing uh, is exciting, but there's not a lot of overtaking opportunities in, in its close confines. So uh, contact happens. But yeah, I remember living in the U.K. and, and NASCAR was definitely 
um, on the tip of everybody's tongue in the early 2000s with Rockingham being built and them promoting an IndyCar race, an oval IndyCar race, um, and then starting their own sort of late model championship. And that was full on action packed as well. And, and of course, some of the teammates that I've raced with from the UK, like Nick Tandy, who started on short tracks um, in, in the UK and of course, grass track racing as well. So I think that you'll find that the, the, the beginnings of local racing is affordable. It's relatively spec and it creates amazing drivers because it's really low tech formula. And if you want to get to the front, uh, you gotta you gotta muscle your way up there, and it makes for an awesome Friday or Saturday night with a a pint of lager in your hand. <laughs> uh, of course, in the stands. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, preferably not behind the wheel. That's right. Yeah, no, no, for for the fans, I meant. There's a, there's a question I, I've been meaning to ask, and I've I keep I keep forgetting. Um, the new GT3 RS. Have you driven it? I have not. Um, I went over uh, to Germany to do the world premiere video with Andreas Pruninger, uh, the G GT director um, of the model line there. And um, his sort of fearful, fearless and um, large teammate that I used to have, uh, Jörg Bergmeister, he actually texted me and he said, what do you think of the car? And I said, gosh, I was concerned. I had heard all these rumors that it was bigger and more extreme and massive wings and all of this aerodynamics. And I thought, I hope it doesn't look, you know, too extreme. Cause I kind of am more of a traditionalist and I like a clean looking car. And when I walked into the room on set to, to shoot that uh, live stream, I knew they had a winner. Um, there was a, a sense of historic sort of lineage and and heritage that they nailed with the 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 red delivery the side stripes the the wheels it felt like a 73 rs to me um but also just the technical side and the new age side of the way that the 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 air was being run across the side of the doors and the way that the exits um from some of the arrow that was taken in from the front it just was this radical and extreme design and I just thought to myself, these cars are going to be so hard to get their hands on. Um, they're just going to be sold out as soon as this this video um, pushes play. But uh, no, Jurek had set it up for me to drive the car. And I unfortunately had already made plans and, and flew out that day and, and missed my opportunity. But um, hopefully it comes soon. I'm sure, they'll have, I'm sure they'll have one at the local experience center for you to uh, have a go in sometime in the future. Working on it, I can imagine. Uh, well, I, th I think on the on the the GT3 RS and the GT3 as a concept, because um, obviously that naturally aspirated four liter engine, they've kind of pushed it as far as they can. And I know, I mean, Andreas Pruninger, the way he talks about the hot cams and the things that they've done to give it that, because um, it, it, it's not got it's it's lower top speed, obviously because of the the, the greater downforce and it's it's a it's a really a demonstration of what can be done when it comes to downforce and the way, like you say, the, the way that they channel the air around through over underneath that car is just a stunning piece of engineering design, all of those things. Um, but I mean, the, the future, I guess, I mean, is that the pinnacle? I don't know. Cause normally Porsche comes out and says, this is the last naturally aspirated 911 or last 911 GT3 RS that you're going to get of this, type i suspect there's going to be something a little bit hotter coming out at some point what do you think 
Well, I can only comment on um, rumors, but um, <laughs> we'll 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 leave it objective for now. the The bottom line is is that if you're into lap times and performance, and um, the debate on your favorite chat board might be about what this car is going to do as a Nurburgring lap time, I don't know the answer to that. But it's going to be a huge new bar set, um, at least for any car that we've put put out there naturally aspirated. So I look forward to um, seeing that. I am old school and and on racetracks, I love naturally aspirated cars. I love the, the over rev, the range, the noise, um, and just that they take the punishment and allow you to just hammer and beat on them all day long. I, I went for a lap record at Road Atlanta, which is a pretty extreme track um, in the 992 GT3. And I could not get over how good that car was and that our lap times were good enough for off pole in the GT4 race uh, a few wow. months later at the Petit Le Mans, where guys were in full, you know, pit crews and, and four layers of Nomex. And here I was in a polo shirt with an open face <laughs> helmet, and I would have been off pole in the race on a street tire. So um, that goes to show just how capable these cars are. And when they say that a GT3 or a GT4 or a GT3 RS is a, is a, a, a race car for the road, um, there's never been more proof than that. So, no, it's it's exciting times. I mean, this company continues to raise the bar with their GT cars. Uh, you see it with how hard it is to get one. Um, the the demand is so much higher than the supply, and and they're building them um, as fast and, and as many as they can for for the clientele. It's it's no gamesmanship. It's just pure demand, and and I love every part of that. And in the end, the the coolest part about it is just how much crossover there is between the race car and the street car. I don't think any other brand on the market um, shares as many parts um, between what the consumer can drive on the road to the racetrack or what they could buy race ready turnkey. When you think about how many hundreds of cup cars are produced from the same assembly line, um, you know, you tell me which manufacturer uh, does that type of stuff and uh, I'll, I'll be impressed. But Porsche, <laughs> You can tell I'm I'm biased. I'm proud to uh, wear the logo and uh, to work with the company. And uh, yeah, they're just super enjoyable cars. But I will say for the record, I'm kind of an old man at heart. And um, I I don't want to daily drive these cars. These cars are, are street cars uh, legally, but I think they're best used on a racetrack. And uh, you find me in a GTS or, or a Taycan um, as a daily driver. Uh, around town. I, I I like turbo. I like electric. I like uh, soft plush suspension. So uh, GT3 on the weekends at the track, but um, I'll take a Taycan during the week. No, I agree. I agree completely because, um, I mean, I've said to Mark many times, I, I've got a 1998 996 and it's just a, a base Carrera. And I love driving that because you can wring its neck in first and second, uh, because the the motorway highway here, the speed limit is 70 miles an hour. So at the weekend, when I take my daughter swimming, we we hit the ramp to go onto the highway and I can hit the national speed limit in second gear and then just really quickly go through the other gears. And it's just a lovely thing to be able to do. Uh, but obviously anything more than that, I mean, that's what 300 brake horsepower, anything more than that. And then it just pushes it a little bit because... I used to have an everyday Golf R, a 2017 Golf R. And it just felt like you couldn't properly enjoy it because it was the DSG and it wasn't manual. And when you floored it, 
the horizon was coming at you too fast to be able to look at the clocks and see what the revs were doing, what the speed was doing. It, it just, it, it, took, it almost took the, it was too clinical and it took the fun out of it and it was too easy to do. It didn't make you work for it. Um, that that was one of the things that I always find that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a limit to what's enjoyable on the road. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to ask you was about uh, Dempsey Del Piero. Um, yeah, racing, racing with... Um two um very well-known names um i remember living in italy racing go-karts um and and del piero alessandro del piero uh you know playing for juventus and uh what a what a name in in the world of football um and then patrick dempsey of course i knew him as just a really friendly guy that i would run into at the airport he seemed to be like a, a racing enthusiast and a and a fan and when I saw that he first went to Le Mans, um, I thought, wow, that's that's really commendable. But that's also a, a deep uh, pool to be jumping in with only a couple of years of racing experience under your belt. And little did I know a few years later, I would get the call um, to go to Le Mans and join um, that squad. And just the fanfare and the following that he had in Europe um, at the height of Grey's Anatomy as a TV show I mean, there was, it felt like hundreds of thousands of people mm -hmm. that were there to see him. Um, I remember Porsche saying that um, his reach in the telecast for the race was far and wide bigger than any manufacturer, the overall winners of the race. It didn't matter. You could combine all of those and it didn't achieve what Patrick Dempsey brought in coverage to the race from the general public. And that's the amazing thing about the 24-hour of Le Mans is, is that it really is an international sporting event and it isn't just for the faithful sports car fan, but people far and wide tune in to watch that race and, and fly to that track to see that race take place. And um, to be sort of uh, his coach and his teammate uh, for three years at Le Mans. And in that final year at Le Mans, we traveled the entire WEC calendar and raced all over the world and fortunately got our, our victory at Fuji that he sort of longed for his whole life. Um, an international stage top of the podium win. And uh, that was super fun. Um, but seeing his emotion at Lamar finishing second there in 2016, man, uh, it was, it was big, big emotion. I guess that was 13, 14, 15, 2015. Uh, I stand corrected, but um, to see somebody realize uh, a life's dream and, and the tears were, were real. Um, it was almost more satisfying than, than winning the race uh, for yourself um, it's just seeing people realize their dreams. So yeah, I still speak to him, um, probably every second day. Um, he's in Italy right now shooting a, a major motion picture that will be uh, super cool. Um, and, and in the interest of people uh, listening to this show. So, um, lots of fun to meet all the different personalities, uh, that Porsche brings together for, uh, races like that. It is. We need to. We need to get. We need to get him. We'll get him on the podcast at some point. Um, we'll work on thing, that. He's a little harder to book than I am. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> the other thing that I was going to ask you was, and and I'm sure Mark was thinking, don't ask this. Uh, endurance racing. Do you have to pee in the seat? Oh yeah, yeah. There's um, nothing's going to bring you in the pits um, other than a flat tire or uh, out of gas or or an engine issue. So, yeah, I mean, when you spend three four hours in the race car, um, it's anything goes. Um, the interesting thing is adrenaline is is an amazing painkiller. Um, so most of the time, 
uh, you don't feel much until you get out of the car. But um, <laughs> when there's a long yellow flag or a stoppage in the race, that's usually when your brain has a little bit of time to to realize how many <laughs> bottles of water you had before the race. <laughs> How's the body holding up after all the years of being in those cars for you, Patrick? It's good. Um, we had a great medical team uh, at the University of Potsdam outside of Port, uh sorry, um, outside of Berlin in Germany. And uh, we were there, you know, multiple times a year and really had a lot of insight into sports science, Olympic level training, um, nutrition, uh, you name it. So um, they did a lot to sort of curb some of the natural stresses that the body takes bouncing around in a 2000 foot pound uh, sprung race car for, you know, more than a third, third of your life uh, at Le Mans. So um, it, it's okay. Um, I, I'm fortunate to live in a period that I that I did in racing, where uh, technology and driver safety was always uh, tip top of of sporting code. Um, when you think about like the, the the movie One and talking about Formula One in the '60s and how dangerous it was, or even sports car racing, um, that was certainly a period where lots of drivers um, took a lot of really really hard hits, but. Um, yeah, I'm fortunate to uh, still be able to keep up with my son on a BMX bike um, out on the track. And we do that for fun um, during the weekend on the weekends. And uh, yeah, it's it's fun. Um, it's 41 for me. Um, so I'm still relatively young in the, the eye of what I want to accomplish in life. But for pro racing, uh, super enjoyable to uh, have my 20s and 30s on the road and plenty of frequent flyer miles. But now it's uh, a little closer to home with family and uh, enjoying it a lot these days. Amazing. Just to let you know, just to let you know, Mark, uh, I played football last night. I may have given myself a hernia. Yeah, I have no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, Patrick, we really, we really appreciate your time and it's been amazing having a chat with you. And um, I hope, I'm sure the listeners are going to have plenty of questions that we'll forward through if they come through to us. And uh, if you can help us out there, it'd be appreciated. And uh, Ajmal, any final words to Patrick? Uh, yes, Patrick, I just need to tell you that it's my anniversary today. Congratulations. And, uh, <laughs> thank you very much. It's been 11 years. And uh, I, I have a confession. I've consumed a bottle of wine this evening because it's 10.30 in the evening here. <laughs> Excellent. Well, enjoy the rest of your university to uh, you and uh, your, your partner. Happy anniversary. Mark, thanks for having me on. I know it was a, a couple of days it took us to align on our schedules, but um, look forward to following your guys' podcast and uh, we'll see you guys out on the trail. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, mate. That was great. Really appreciate your time. It was uh, Hopefully it all went okay for you. Yeah, it was easy. Yep, good to hear. And uh, good luck with the upcoming event. I'm sure it's uh, it'll be quite a relief to uh, close the gates at the end of that day. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I mean, this is this is probably our 13th or 14th event over, over uh, 10 years, and so – um, we know what to expect this time, and I'm I'm really excited, but just not enough time in the day right now, and uh, we'll we'll get after it and uh, keep it keep it pinned. So hopefully we we'll see you guys at an event. Uh, plan it for uh, 2023. Yeah, we've got to have to be. We're gonna have to do it. Look forward to it. Sounds good. All right, have a good <laughs> okay. night. Thanks for staying up late. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Patrick.